0: Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and co-parents of all ages, this podcast is for you. Introducing in the center ring, the amicable divorce expert, Judith Weigel. It was absolutely a three-ring circus at the Oscars last night, and I am so happy I waited to record this episode of Celebrity Divorces until the day after the Oscars. If any of you saw it, you'll know what I'm talking about right now before I break it down. And if you didn't watch the Oscars, you're not going to avoid it if you turn your computer on and go online or turn any news program on. It's about Will Smith getting out of his seat, walking on stage, and physically assaulting Chris Rock. Live and in person and on national media. I work in the field of divorce. I work as a mediator. It is absolutely one of the most difficult discussions to have when one spouse is physically aggressive with another spouse. And that's why I wanted to bring this up. No, this isn't about divorce, but this is about an aspect of people's relationships and how they handle conflict resolution. So here's what went down. And I want you all to watch this tape very well because I'm looking at this in a completely different way than I have listened to most news, pe- pe- most news media represented today. So here's what went down. Chris is a presenter. Chris goes on stage. Chris makes a joke about Jada Pinkett Smith's hair. Now, I don't know if any of you know this, but It has been brought out. Jada Pinkett Smith does suffer from alopecia, which is hair loss. It's a drag whether it's a man or a woman, but it's really super sensitive. I think for women, because we are more super sensitive about our looks, I don't know. I I bet I could meet any number of men who are also super sensitive about their looks. Let's go back to the evening. Chris makes a joke about Jada Pinkett Smith. Will Smith is laughing hysterically at the joke. Will Smith's reaction was not to get angry at Chris. Will Smith's reaction was to think it's funny and laugh. Then the camera pans over to Jada. And Jada seemed rather nonplussed at Chris's joke, kind of like blew him off facially. Then she looked at her husband and scowled. Will Smith reacted to Jada scowling at Will for laughing. So let's get this right. Will did not react adversely to the joke at all. Will thought the joke was funny. Will reacted to Jada looking at him and scowling at his reaction to the joke, which was to laugh. And then in that moment, Will decided to get up and physically assault Chris Rock slapped him across the face. Obviously, Chris was in shock. You have to understand that everybody who's a comedian and generally who's a presenter makes fun of somebody in the audience. The three hosts, the three ladies who were hosts made fun of people in the audience. Everybody knows, every actor knows that when you go to the Oscars, you're going to be made fun of especially if you're an A-list star. Even Tom Hanks gets made fun of when he's at the Oscars. So nobody avoids it. You know you're going to get made fun of. So you just kind of wait your turn. That's the gig in Hollywood. When Will walked on stage and his chosen reaction to his wife's admonishment, because you know how women can admonish you in one look, doesn't even take a word. It just takes a look and you get admonished. So Will's reaction to Jada's admonishment was to go up and physically assault Chris Rock and then to curse Adam, which I'm not going to repeat. You'll hear it all day. Now I'm a divorce mediator and I look at this a completely different way. If Will really wanted to be honest in this moment about who he was really protecting. He was protecting himself. He wasn't protecting his wife. He was protecting himself. He went from, oh no, making his wife angry by laughing at the joke and supporting the joke to you are wrong, Chris, for saying the joke. Mm -mm. Will was wrong for laughing at the joke obviously because of some prior issues he and his wife were having. So as a divorce mediator, you never really know what comes before the issue that's presented in mediation. You don't know what came before it. You don't know what set up the reactions and what the couple is going to be asking for until much later in the mediation. And if either party is struggling and frustrated about not coming to resolution, they will throw out the dirty laundry. And then that all of a sudden changes the perspective of what this issue is really about. So I'm going to suggest how Will Smith could have done this differently and made it a wonderful, teachable moment to everybody and really supported his wife. What Will could have done when he got on stage would say, look, I have to apologize to my wife publicly. I laughed at Chris's joke. I laughed. I didn't get angry at it. I wasn't annoyed by it. I laughed at the joke. And Jada was less, well, I don't know if Chris, I don't know if Will saw this on Jada's face, that initially she was nonplussed. She just kind of blew Chris off. She got upset when she saw her husband laughing. And so Will could have said after he apologized that he was very unsupportive and thought the joke was funny. And he could have apologized publicly to his lovely wife, who I adore and have been married to for a million years and have had wonderful children with. I apologize to you, Jada, for not being more supportive. I know that alopecia bothers you. You have talked about it many times on your own show, Red Table Talks. And you've addressed the issue in other interviews. I should have known... Not to laugh, but I did laugh, and I'm so sorry about that. And Chris, he could have turned to Chris and said, Look, Chris, you're a professional comedian, you're not doing anything differently than other comedians have done, which is make fun of us somehow, some way, sitting in the audience. But this really bothers my wife, and so I'm just here to say I want to support my wife, I understand where you're coming from as a professional comedian. But my wife got upset at me for laughing at you. And so I just want to s- straighten the record out and apologize to my lovely wife. Now, that, how do you think that would have set Will Smith up in the public eye? because that's really the issue. The issue is not, should Chris have said the joke or not? I am uncomfortable with many of the jokes that comedians and presenters say to people in the audience, I actually become uncomfortable. And I, if I were some of those celebrities, would be wiggling in my seat. But you don't slap people, you don't slap the professional who's just doing their job. That's what they're there to do. And it was more than likely vetted. I don't know. Was that preplanned? Was that, um, was that just spur of the moment? I don't know. I mean, professional comedians do have the ability of just thinking on their feet and extemporaneously speaking out whatever they think is funny at the time. I mean, Bill Maher has gotten in hot water about racial prejudice. Oh my God, if there's anybody who's not racially prejudiced, it's Bill Maher. And he's had how many black people on his show? Yet the black people roasted him. Uh, I forget what he said, but they roasted him about a year or two ago. But if you want a teachable moment, Here's what you do in conflict resolution, and I don't care what type, of the co- what type of conflict it is. You first of all look at yourself and you see what you have to correct on public record. An apology takes a big person to apologize. And if you want to use an international televised stage for the betterment of society and to elevate a point that you think is important, then you look to yourself first, and you look how you fed into that. And then after you apologize, you use that moment to possibly change moments like this going forward. And I really, really appreciate having the opportunity to speak about this Because I talk about this on my podcast all the time. I write about this in my blogs all the time. I talk to couples when they get into the mediation room and say, look, this isn't about blaming the other person. This is about looking at aspects of your marriage, of your relationship, that are coming into play now in terms of a settlement. And A, if there's anything for you to apologize for, Do it because that will just release you from the bonds of guilt and that will put you in the position of making a really good settlement. And then, number two, forgive. If you are in the position of the one to forgive, that releases you from the bondage of oh, anger, hurt, grief, depression. Yes. Those are bondage emotions that keep us stuck and don't allow us to move forward. So people will provide, uh, will enact grievances that legitimately they need to apologize to us for. But if we can forgive, that releases us, that frees us from anger, grief, loss, And that's the only thing to do. That is the only way to move forward emotionally. So I am so sorry, Will, that you chose physical aggression against words. Don't we teach our children that if they are bullied, if anything is said to them in an untoward way in the schoolyard, they are not to pummel their opponent? They are to try and use words to correct the situation. I mean, in schools now, you have what's called peer mediation. School children are learning conflict resolution, and they're presenting um, their own uh, formats and settings for kids to come in and negotiate and work out in words any type of aggression that's happened in the classroom and in the schoolyard. And I wish Will would have done that. But thank you, Will, anyway. I mean, I'm not blaming you, Will. I'm really not. I don't want to be that person to blame. I'm just looking at a situation as a mediator. And this is a divorce podcast, an amicable divorce podcast. And everything I do is for an amicable solution. That would have been the amicable solution. and people would have stood up and applauded Will Smith for taking that huge step to recognize that he hurt his wife. Chris didn't hurt his wife. He hurt his wife by laughing at Chris's joke. And that's where the issue lies. So while everybody's jumping on the bandwagon now and wanting to decide whether Chris should have said the joke or not, the jokes are always going to be made. Knock it off. Forget the cancel culture stuff. That's ridiculous. The real issue is how do you handle things in an amicable way, supporting conflict resolution in the best way possible, and it's not by physical aggression, but after this point is being made, (laughs) guess who offers mediation? Sean Puffy Combs. Now, I love that, that Sean Puffy Combs gets on stage as a presenter after that and says, let's mediate, of course, at the gold party. Now, was that the Vanity Fair party? I don't know what the gold party was. Unfortunately, I didn't get the invitation. And I have been to some of these after parties. When I produced entertainment for the events, Uh, industry. I've been to film premieres. I've been to the Oscars. I've uh, produced bands that played for the Governor's Ball, which is the after party at the Oscars. Oh, I've been there. And those are fun. But Sean Puffy Combs, wanting to be the mediator after his own episodes with physical aggression, remember Jennifer Lopez and the nightclub and the guns and everybody's going to jail for a minute, He's come a long way, baby. He's come a long way. And I, that, then he, what? Uh, Biggie Smalls gets killed at the uh, after party for, I guess, the Grammys some years ago. Oh my gosh. But I love Sean Puffy Combs as the mediator. One who knows violence. I know, I love that. Okay, so enough said about that. Now let's go to the other aspects of the Oscars celebrity divorces that I want to talk about. I'm going to highlight Steven Spielberg's divorce to Amy Irving back in 1989, and we're going to talk about a prenup agreement in that celebrity divorce because Steven had West Side Story up for an award last night at the Oscars. And then we're going to talk about kind of a combined divorce issue. We're going to talk about the movie Being the Ricardos because that was about Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz's relationship. And that, this is an interesting story in their relationship, which has to do with working together and being married. And what do you do with the business called Desilu Productions. What do you do with the business that you both are owning and and working at when you get a divorce? And then since Nicole Kidman starred as Lucille Ball in being the Ricardos, I want to talk about her divorce from Tom Cruise. And the aspects of that divorce would be custody and being a step-parent and turning into blended families. So let's start with Steven Spielberg. Steven Spielberg was quite famous when he married Amy Irving in 1985. In fact, the films that came before the divorce, the marriage were Jaws in 1979. I mean, this was the first blockbuster that Steven Spielberg had, although he had a few other films before that. His big blockbuster was Jaws in 1975, then Close Encounters of the Third Kind in 1977, Raiders of the Lost Ark in 1981 and also kind oh I'm sorry in 1982 E.T. The Extraterrestrial and Poltergeist, that was 1982, 1983, Twilight Zone the Movie, and 1984 Indiana Jones and The Temple of Doom. 1985, the year he got married to Amy Irving, he was producing. Uh, The Color Purple, sorry about that, and The Goonies, 1987 Empire of the Sun, 1989 The Year He Got Divorced, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, and the film Always. Okay, so there's a lot of money on the table to the tune of, if I'm reading correctly, $200 million. Now, Let's talk about the prenup. Everybody has a completely wrong understanding of prenups if you want them to hold up in court. People cannot and should not write their own prenups. And in Steven Spielberg's case, there was apparently a prenup written on a napkin. Well, I don't know that it actually matters what product the prenup is written on, I think what matters is what what does it need to make it valid what it needs to make it valid as we have heard from attorney Warren Shield I think 2 years ago on this podcast look it up look up Warren Shield and prenuptial agreements because there is there are considerations for prenups a both spouses need to have attorneys representing them so that the deal points for the prenup can be appropriately written about and appropriately addressed within the prenuptial agreement, the written agreement. There also needs to be time before the wedding allotted so that both spouses, soon-to-be spouses, can properly think about this so that they are not forced into an agreement. I mean, this came up with Dr. Dre and his wife, Nicole, the whole, they had a big issue about a prenup. And yes, there was a prenup, but somehow it couldn't be found. Okay, it may not be found in your house, but it will be found in the attorney's office if the attorney is still alive. There will be a copy of it. It's not filed with the court, but it's kept as record in the attorney's office. So, they wrote down on a prenup that apparently um, the full estate was not going to be divided equally. I am going to guess, although there's nothing that talks about what's inside of the prenup, I'm going to guess that it was she does not get half of his intellectual properties so in the world of film and television when people write movies direct movies star in movies these are pieces of intellectual property now when you write movies the intellectual property starts a while ago and then it goes through all these different changes then it gets pitched to the movie studios Then it eventually gets made. So this is a really long process when you have intellectual property that becomes community property when you get divorced. The other reason why I read to you all the films that Stephen had already produced prior to getting married and the films being produced during the marriage, written and produced and directed, because he did everything was because Stephen had a real hotshot attorney, Bruce Raymer. Now, Bruce Raymer is one of the most respected entertainment attorneys in Hollywood. In fact, when I was in the events business producing entertainment for events, when Bruce Raymer got married to Madeline, now Raymer, and that was both of their second marriages, I produced the entertainment for that wedding at their house in Truesdale Estates. And guess who was at that wedding ceremony? And that was in the 90s. It was Steven Spielberg, Jeffrey Katzenberg, and Clint Eastwood, who had been with Bruce Raymer forever. So my question is, why didn't Steven have Bruce write up the prenup? Why didn't that happen? Was was Stephen not with Bruce at the time? Maybe, but it was in the mid to to late nineties that we had this wedding for Bruce Raymer. I I can't imagine. Well, first of all, even if even if Stephen thinking this through, even if Stephen was not with Bruce at the time, you know he had an attorney. I mean, he was already rich and famous. Of course he had an attorney. So why was the prenup written on a, ma- on a napkin? It really surprises me. Well, here's the upshot of it all. Amy walked away with half the estate. Amy walked away with $100 million because obviously the napkin was reviewed and it wasn't reviewed to be, as, to be in support of the law. And therefore, it was challenged, and um, Stephen didn't win. Amy got half the estate. Did that hurt Stephen? Certainly not going forward. They had one child, so there was custody. Nothing ugly was in the paper about that. I was here. I remember all of that. Nothing ugly in the paper about custody. So then when Stephen went on to marry Cape Catshaw obviously there was the blended family aspect of it. And it really, really sounds like Stephen being the family man that he is, and he really is. And why do I say that? Because when my niece, Sophia, graduated from high school, Stephen's oldest daughter went there to high school and he was there filming at Disney Hall, which is where the ceremony took place. Um, whatever was going on in his life, he took off for that day. His daughter was extremely important. And I was also present at Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson's 10th year anniversary, which they had at the Malibu house. And that was back in the 90s when I was in entertainment. It was star studded, but it was just people going to an event and having fun. And I'll never forget watching Steven Spielberg at that event. And by the way, Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise were still married at that time because they were both at that event. Interesting that we're going to go into this divorce as well today. But there was Steven Spielberg in the middle of this star-studded event. I mean, every A-lister in Hollywood was there. Rob Reiner was there, Goldie Hawn, Her husband, Kurt, I mean, everybody, everybody was there. There was Steven Spielberg with his little camera on the dance floor videotaping everybody dancing. I I provided the Beatles band for that event. It was heartwarming. It was just people having fun with people. But yes, when you get prenups, you must have attorneys. I get called for prenups all the time, and I say clearly, because Warren taught me this on the episode, that I don't, as a non-attorney, write prenups. The law changes so frequently with prenups that only an attorney can and should write them. If I wrote one, I'm sure it wouldn't stand up in court because I would not know all the law to put in. I wouldn't know the current law. Most attorneys don't write prenups. That's the other thing. Not every attorney writes prenups. And I asked Warren why. And he said, because of malpractice. Because the law changes so much that when you write a prenup, you have to write it with the understanding and caveats that it will supersede any existing law. That's really the trick in writing prenups. And again, it needs to be in enough time, I think two months, but I've heard attorneys use different timeframes that they should be written in and negotiated and both spouses should have attorneys. And if both spouses don't have attorneys, the attorney representing the other spouse typically puts on videotape when they're sitting with the spouse the soon-to-be spouse without an attorney, they put on videotape that this soon-to-be spouse knowingly is choosing not to have an attorney. That's how important having attorneys are. So everybody who's either written a prenup, listening to this, going through a divorce, thinking their prenup will stand, it will stand if it's not challenged in court. So if you're writing a prenup with a spouse that you're divorcing, and you're both okay with the terms and conditions, even though you know the law has changed, fine, go with the prenup that you wrote. But if one spouse is challenging the prenup because they weren't educated enough, they were naive, they were Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They were awestruck (laughs) because they were marrying somebody so super rich and so famous that um, they weren't thinking straight. Any of those reasons. If you are, if you, if one of the spouses challenges it in court, it, it may not hold up in court. So just bite the bullet, spend the money and get it done the right way. Even, If, well, even if you've already written the prenup, just get ready, you know, just get ready to make compromises Um, because to go to court and have a challenge, it's, it's, it's certainly not going to be to your benefit. All right, let's move on. Let's move on to being the Ricardos. Let's move on to the Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz divorce. So Lucy and Desi had a 20-year marriage. They officially divorced in 1960. They got married in 1940. And four years after being married, Lucy initially filed for divorce. She filed for divorce because she cited extreme mental aggravation, What's what's a, what? Hold on a minute. Extreme cruelty and grievous mental suffering. She cited extreme cruelty and grievous mental suffering. Okay, so this is really interesting. It could be cultural because certain cultures are very male dominated more than the American culture. And Desi was, was at what a Cuban American? And so that's a very male dominated culture. It doesn't give anybody the right to physically abuse anybody or mentally abuse, but different cultures have different gender structures and that's just the way it is. You know, we can, hopefully that changes as time goes on and new generations soften that and equalize the power balance between men and women. But you know that's what lucy cited and maybe way back in 1960 you had to cite grievances because in california now as in most states they're they're what are called co- they are what are called no fault divorce States, meaning you don't have to cite reasons for the divorce. But I'm guessing that in 1960, you had to cite reasons. Um, The actual reasons that drove the divorce in 1944 was Desi's excessive drinking and infidelity. So let me just read to you from this day in history i think this is really interesting and this is then goes into dividing a business because that's really what was at heart custody yes they had two children but the biggest issue was dividing the business so let me read to you from this report after 20 tumultuous years of marriage actress lucille ball divorces her husband and collaborator desi arnaz on march 4th 1960 the breakup of the couple. Stars of the hit sitcom I Love Lucy and owners of the innovative Desi Lu Studios was one of the highest profile divorces in American history at the time. Ball met Arnez five years her junior, so another breakthrough. Older woman, younger man. I know five years isn't much, but still while she was acting and he was leading a band in the film too many girls they married six months later okay that's another thing six months does not give you enough time to learn about somebody i know there's love at first sight people love getting married but you know maybe a year is better Moving on. Though the two were, by all accounts, deeply in love for most of their lives, the relationship was always tumultuous due to both of them being in show business and to Arnez's womanizing and problems with alcohol. Ball first saw the divorce four years into the marriage, 1944, but they reconciled and determined to strengthen their relationship by finding opportunities to work together. Okay, so that's really interesting because they did make magic as a working couple. They really did. They were great on screen together. I guess they just didn't make the same kind of magic in their marriage. When CBS asked her to develop a sitcom, Ball insisted on having her real-life husband play her husband on the show. The network was hesitant to cast a Cuban-American as a co-lead, but the couple convinced them by putting on a live show and conducting a successful tour. Okay, let me stop there a second, because when I came to Los Angeles in 1989 and started producing music for private events, I was working with my brother at the time, and Generally, it was an all-white band or orchestra, and the only time ethnicities were allowed on stage was when it was an ethnic niche-specific type of music, like Motown music. You would have a four-piece black male or three-piece black female, Supremes versus Temptations, Four Tops. Smokey Robin, etc. Robin's, etc. You people just really didn't have mixed races, mixed cultures in a band. It just seemed like people were concerned about mixing the basic band culturally, ethnically, racially. And I, in 1996, said no. I think that's ridiculous because people who are wealthy enough to hire us to provide bands and orchestras travel. And they travel to exotic lands. They travel to continents and countries that are different cultures, different races. And they consider that cultural experiences. So why can't we do that, give them cultural experiences in the band? So I went off on my own and the first mark I made was with Cuban music. I loved salsa. So I said, I'm going to start promoting salsa. And in salsa bands, you had mixed races. You had white people, black people, and Cubans, um, Spanish people. And within a week, I was contacted by Sandy Gallen, one of the most famous artist managers in Los Angeles. He's deceased now. He was managing Dolly Parton, Richard Gere, Shirley McLean, Roseanne Barr. I mean, he was having a star studded event at his home in a day and had me and heard that I was producing um, salsa music and had me come to his house in Truesdale Estates. There I am back in Truesdale Estates. And we were picking out the music for the party the next day. I proved the point that we do more harm to ourselves by thinking that we need to be culturally separated than we do by just taking the, the bull by the horns and giving people culturally innovative music and mixing it up, allowing it to be free. And whoever is in the band, mixed races, whatever makes the music great, is the way music should be presented. I just needed to say that because way back when, in what, 1950, 1951, that's how Lucy was thinking. There is no reason to separate races and cultures. And she proved it right. Big hit. I'm back to the article now. I Love Lucy, which was that hit show that ran from 1951 until 1957. It was popular for the entirety of its run, won five Emmys, and continues to be regarded as one of the most influential programs in American history. Once again challenging the powers that be, those Hollywood geniuses, Ball and Arnez, even wrote her pregnancy with their second son. Little Ricky, into the show, making it the first television program to depict a pregnancy. If you remember, um, oh gosh, um, Mary Tyler Moore and Dick Van Dyke, they didn't even sleep in the same bed. Remember that sitcom from the 60s? People were sleeping in the same bed all, all around. They weren't even sleeping in the same bed. But Lucy was such a ball buster. Lucille Ball the ball buster she put the pregnancy on TV back to the article Desilu Studios which they founded to produce the show was for a time the largest independent production company in the country and it produced a number of shows besides I Love Lucy including Mission Impossible and the original Star Trek I had no idea I uh, see I'm learning something here now I Love Lucy and its successor, the Lucy Desi Comedy Hour, lovingly poked fun at married life in modern America. However, the underlying problems of the real-life marriage it was based on never went away. Ball filed for divorce in 1960 and bought out Arnez's share in Desilu Studios two years later, becoming the first woman to run a major television studio. Though the divorce was reportedly contentious, the two remained close for the rest of their lives, which they each spent in show business. Now, amazing. They kept most of the contentiousness out of the papers. They had two children, and she became the first woman to own a Hollywood studio. She bought her husband out. That's amazing. So let's talk for a minute about dividing a business. When you're getting divorced, let's just say you both work in the business because there are several cases that I have right now where there's a family business and both of them aren't on title in one business But she works in the business as an employee. She knows everything about the income of the business. So when it's time to provide the financial statements, they better be crystal clear. They better be on point because she knows what's happening. She can ask for a portion of the business. It requires a forensic accountant. If you really want to divide it correctly, your lawyers can't do it you really have to hire a forensic accountant because there's a different valuation for different industries and you need a forensic accountant to really deal with it. So that's one option you have. If you you have a family business where you either co-own it or only one person owns it and you wanna divide it, you need to bring a forensic on board. Now, if the business is making money, the price you're going to pay for the forensic will be justified. But if the business zeros out and it really only makes enough money to pay the family bills, I mean, what's the point? What's the point of spending money? You really have to assess whether it's worth it financially to divide the business. What does it make? And what will it cost to divide it? Otherwise, you use the income that the spouse is making who's going to stay with the business as the revenue upon which child support, if you have children, and spousal support, if you're asking for that, will be based. Now, what do you do if you co-own the business? So I have another client and they co-own the business. They're staying as co-owners. They're actually, this is the hardest thing in the world because you're getting divorced for a reason, but you're staying together and working in the business. This is a Herculean effort. This is amazing that people can do that because just dial it back and think of what this means. What if there was infidelity? That in and of itself is enough to get over. So, let's just say infidelity is one of the reasons why you're getting divorced, you're working together, you own the business together, and you have to deal with each other on a daily basis. What if the infidelity really turns into a major relationship and that person comes to visit the business? I mean, this is really tough. It's incumbent upon the person who has to accept the infidelity to forgive. It's incumbent upon the person who committed the infidelity to apologize. With those two emotional pieces in place, apology and forgiveness, it can move mountains. And you really can then continue to work together, especially if it's a high income producing business. I mean, what a shame to destroy that. What a shame if you have worked together so well all of these years, and now you have to change that. So hats off to the couple who is not changing that and is continuing to work together. And I've had several couples like that. And then I've had the opposite where they just can't work together. It's too hard, and that's to be expected as well. So the real deal on dividing a business is, A, look at what the value of the business is. Is it worth it to divide it? Is it worth it to hire the professionals, the forensic accountants, to come in and value the business so that you can divide it properly? Or is it more in your best interest to hope the business continues to flourish so that the revenue upon which the payor, the business owner, uh, will base child and spousal support, is that going to be in your best interest? So a lot to consider when dividing a business. But here's the other thing to consider that comes into play. Depending on what type of business it is and if it's a business that has a lot of cash involved and you've been filing joint tax returns, for years and signing off on a value to the business that may not be accurate because you haven't reported cash, that's going to bite you. Because when it comes to dealing with the financial aspect of the business and you're looking at child and spousal support and you both know that the business and you make more money than you have provided on paper, and you filed that with the federal and state government, you have committed fraud. And if you're going to challenge that, you're admitting you've committed fraud. So what do you do? You have to live by the tax returns. You have to live by what you have already stated publicly in your income tax filings. And once you start filing separately, perhaps that can change because you're no longer filing together. Hopefully you have learned your lesson and going forward, you are declaring all cash. You are declaring everything. Yes, you have to spend tax money on it, but look what it's doing in the long run. It's not serving you well. Honesty is the best policy, and that's the biggest lesson from how you represent yourself if there's a family business and you're now getting divorced. A lot to think about. Okay, now let's end with Nicole Kidman, who played Lucy in uh, Being the Ricardos and her divorce from Tom Cruise. There's going to be custody, blended families, and working together as the three aspects of this divorce. So, Nicole married Tom in 1990 and they got divorced in 2002. Prior to marriage, Tom had already been a major, major blockbuster celebrity. The films he had done that were really, really big films, well, Weren't they all? Endless Love, Taps, The Outsiders. I don't know what losing it is. Risky Business, oh my god, 1983 Risky Business. I don't know Legend or All the Right Moves. Top Gun in 1986, The Color of Money in 1986, Cocktail in 1988, Rain Man in 1988, Born on the Fourth of July in 1989. And then in 1990, Days of Thunder, where they met, fell in love, and got married. Then the other films, Far and Away, A Few Good Men, The Firm, this is all Tom. Interview with a Vampire, Mission Impossible, Cherry McGuire, Show Me the Money. I don't know Without Limits, sorry about that. Uh, maybe it wasn't anything. And then Eyes Wide Shut, that was their last film together. That was in 1999. Now, in 1999, I have to tell you that I was in the events business and I did the music. I produced the music for the film premiere of Eyes Wide Shut. And I remember them walking right past me, sitting down at a table and just being totally in love. So let's read a little bit from some articles. Let's do a chronology and let's look at what all of this means. Because there's a couple other aspects of this divorce that really come into play like religion. I forgot about that. So the 1990s had a lot of great things. The beginning, of, I'm reading from, from She Knows, by the way, sorry about that. I'm reading from a publication called She Knows. The 1990s had a lot of great things. The beginning of Friends, Unbelievably stylish ensembles, and the birth of the iconic It couple. And that was Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise. They were everywhere, and everyone wanted to know every detail about the shocking couple. Cruise was already one of Hollywood's elites when they tied the knot in 1990, but everyone wanted to know who was this gorgeous Australian actress who stole his heart. They met on the set of the hit film Days of Thunder and tied the knot a year later on Christmas Eve in 1990. Before Kidman became the superstar she is today, she told Marie Claire magazine, her goal cast, that she felt like a trophy at the beginning of their marriage. Quote, I thought, I don't deserve to be here. We would go to the Oscars and I would think, I'm here to support Tom. I felt it was my job to put on a beautiful dress and to be seen and not heard. And bear in mind, she was already an actress. She was an actress in Australia, and then she had her premiere with Tom in Days of Thunder. Then came kids, more films, and a lot of red carpet appearances. They would frequently say how much they loved one another in interviews with Cruz calling Kidman his soulmate. They were the faces of '90s love, and their sudden divorce in 2001—I guess they filed in 2001, and it became official in 2002—shocked everyone. Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman were at that party for Tom Hanks. Don't forget, and of course, they were friends with Steven Spielberg. Um, yes, it's 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 such a Hollywood family. I cannot tell you. Uh, They married, by the way, in 1990 in Telluride, Colorado. And when they were to have children, they adopted two children. Prior to having children, by the way, they did meet with Princess Diana. Royalty Hollywood meets Royalty England, and I love that. So in 1992, they're meeting with Princess Diana, but they're also adopting not biologically generating, but adopting a daughter named Isabella Jane. And then in 1995, they adopted a son named Connor. They were very private about their children's lives and rarely put them in the spotlight. So I I know this doesn't matter one way or the other to the divorce, but I do wonder why they adopted children instead of conceiving them. And I don't really know whether they can conceive. I but I guess, I don't know, this is what they chose to do. And, and by the way, I love adoption. I mean, giving children homes that have already been born, I mean, I want to cry every time I read about somebody doing this. But here's something that factors into divorce, religion. Now, we all know that Tom is a Scientologist. Nicole Kidman joined the Church of Scientology for Tom Cruise but decided to leave in 1997. And at one point, she even got Cruz to leave for a brief period of time, according to the Daily Beast. So we have a couple things going on now. Nicole felt like a trophy wife, wife, even though she was working, but she felt that she was just there to be on Tom's arm. Well, if you weren't an actress, and, and if you didn't want to make acting your job, being a trophy wife is just fine. I mean, you certainly live well and you get to go to the best parties, especially if your spouse, well, this works well if you're a wife of a, of a famous Hollywood act, actor. It's really tough if you're the male, if you're the husband of a famous Hollywood actress, that's the tough part. That's the role reversal that's, well, look at Adele. I mean, she was the celebrity, even though her husband, Simon, was her manager. She was the celebrity. She made more money, and it just didn't last that long. Yes, there were other reasons cited, because I did uh, Adele a couple months ago on the Celebrity Divorce Series. She was saying that she didn't get the attention from her father, because he was an alcoholic. he wasn't around much, and Simon was so focused and present with her that, she got from Simon what she didn't get from her father. And you know, we look for these things in our relationships. It's not bad, it's not wrong, it's just us being humans and going on our journey to find ourselves, to find peace within ourselves, to find joy, and to find relationships and live out our lives in the way that makes us happiest. But I thought that was interesting because. She wasn't well-known, but she sure was on her way because this woman did not look back professionally after she got divorced. And she married somebody, Keith Urban, who is equally successful. So that's lasted for quite a while. But the fact that she joined This Church of Scientology for Tom, I think, speaks boatloads to her trying to make the relationship work, because that was so important to Tom, that she got out. And Tom got out and then went back in, because I guess that's where he's at. In a 2002 interview with Vanity Fair, the year after her divorce, Nicole Kidman admitted that she'd, she'd been so head over heels, she overlooked some things quote i fell madly passionately in love and as happens when you fall in love my whole plan in terms of what i wanted for my life i was like forget it this is it i was consumed by it willingly and i was desperate to have a baby with him i didn't even care if we were married this is very interesting because she wanted a career as an actress But she, like so many women, was ready to put her career aside and be the wife of a famous actor because she loved him, not for the money. Because she loved him, I kind of really believe that. But this is what she's saying, so we're going to have to go with it. And she would even have a baby with him without being married. Well, some people actually do better unmarried than married. So, um, but that's how she thought, and that was fine. But what did she overlook? She didn't really say what she overlooked. Did she overlook the fact that she was sublimating herself? I think that's what she was uh, inferring, that she sublimated herself to Tom, when her real goal was to be a prolific actress. And after they got divorced, she was. And she wanted to have children with him, but They adopted. So, you know, they they were great at keeping things on the down low. I remember Tom once, oh, no, that's when he got married to Katie Holmes. His kids, he got upset because a um, paparazzi took a picture of his child with Katie. Right. And that's when he got upset. But they did really well, and they appeared to have a very amicable divorce. Who knew she was crushed as much as she was? But. I was quite surprised that when they made, now what year was Eyes Wide Shut? Um, 1999. Eyes Wide Shut, 1999. That was their last film together. And he was starting to work on Vanilla Sky at the time and started a relationship with Penelope Cruz. And I guess... I guess that was the deal breaker, more than likely. Um, in, two, in a 2020 interview with the New York Times Magazine, Nicole Kidman said that during Eyes Wide Shut, she and Tom made some amazing memories together. We were happily married through that. Okay, great. We would go go go-karting, racing after those scenes, would rent out a place and go racing at three in the morning. Oh, you Hollywood couples. I don't know what else to say. Maybe I don't have the ability to look back and diss it, or I'm not willing to. Despite officials saying it was an amicable divorce, Nicole said she was blindsided when Tom Cruise filed for divorce from her. So Tom filed for divorce. Nicole didn't file for divorce. Now, that's interesting because most of these Hollywood divorces, you have women filing. So what what are we getting out of this? Well, we're getting that even with people who are powerful, even with people who have drive, even with people like Nicole who have a vision for the future, Women can be so easily deterred from what they want in life because they're the ones that have the children and they're the ones that typically either are expected to stay home because they make less than their husbands a lot of times, not every time, and they are looked at as having more of a nurturing gene than their husbands. And that's not always true. I've met some very nurturing men. But look at Nicole, she was ready to put it all on hold because she was madly in love with Tom. And then as it turned out, if these accounts are correct, Tom is the one who filed for divorce after apparently having a wonderful time making eyes wide shut. And you know, this reminds me of a few other couples that I've worked with, where one person was completely blindsided. Uh, and the other filed on their own. And quite often, it seems that divorce isn't filed for because it's apparent that everything is going wrong in the marriage. There are those times where things look like they're going well, or you both know you have ups and downs, but all of a sudden you're in a good place, and then you get served with divorce papers. It is Quite amazing how people get out of marriage. So, you have to understand that even with the person filing, it's not an easy job to do. It's frightening and scary just to be the one filing. And a lot of times, before people file, they kind of want it to be nice. This is really ironic and opposite from logic but emotions have no logic. Emotions are what they are and we use them in the best way we can to get by. So you're the one that wants the divorce. You're the one that's going to file, but you're not going to file with your spouse. You're going to file on your own. And, And there are times when the person who's going to file on their own kind of creates a nice warm environment making it extremely shocking to be served with divorce papers amazing we see on the real housewives of orange county sweet james is a uh, a personal injury attorney in southern california sweet james married i can't even remember her name right now but she's brazilian fairy out there, that she's Brazilian. And they've been married six years. That's what she said on TV. And they were having a great time. And all of a sudden, she served with divorce papers in, the, in a bouquet of flowers. I, I just, that first of all, I've never heard of that. That was kind of interesting to me. But I have heard of, you make it nice before you file for divorce. And then I, I don't know, somehow it makes you feel better to file for divorce if you've made it nice leading into it. Maybe the, your your spouse is going to react better. I don't know what the thinking is on this, but I, I do have to ask the next time it happens. What is your thinking on this? Um, how do you think this is going to make things better? By going from um, making a great series of experiences and then serving. Papers for divorce. Interesting. Interesting how people justify their behavior. So, this is it. These are the divorces I wanted to present. Steven Spielberg in the prenup and custody. Lucy and Desi in their divorce and dividing a business. And a woman being the one who buys out the business. And Nicole and Tom with Nicole ready to change her life to be with her man, her life being an actress, and he filing for divorce after they've had a great time filming a second film together. Thank you very much for listening. I hope this has helped any of you going through your divorce now or preparing for divorce. I Oh, I'm sorry. And leaving out the conflict resolution skills. What am I talking about? I can't believe I forgot this. Starting it off with conflict resolution. Maybe not in a divorce, but conflict resolution is all about, you know, what you have to go through in divorce and physical violence. There is no reason. If you're not defending yourself physically because... Physical violence has been perpetrated upon you. If you're only dealing with words, physical violence is inappropriate, beyond belief, no excuse. No excuse for physical violence when only words were used to start with. And how we can use conflict resolution to elevate people's consciousness. So thank you very much. please all comments are welcome. You can reach me through my email, Judith at the Judith at the Please share this with your friends, please subscribe and as always, have an amicable day. That's our show for today. Thank you for joining us. Be good to yourselves. Be kind to your spouse and cherish your children above all else.